On this edition of the Scott Radley Podcast, we are going to chat about Blue, not Blue Man Group, not any of the other thing, Blue, not Labatt's Blue, Blue Politics. Across the country, province after province after province is turning blue. Is this a response to Prime Minister Trudeau or is this something else? We're also going to chat about floating in case you're feeling blue, perhaps. Do you go, do you like the idea of going into a big saltwater tank in the dark, in silence and floating your stress away? It's a thing you can do in Hamilton now. And to wrap up the whole blue theme, the Leafs, you know what happened to them. What do they do going forward and whose fault is it? We chat about that as well. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Now, you know that in 2015, it's, boy, time is flying, but 2015, Justin Trudeau led the federal liberals to a majority government. That You're well aware of that by now. And the country at that time was largely governed province to province from the left. Most provinces were led at that time by either liberal or NDP premiers. Well, this fall, we go back to the polls again. You know that uh, for a federal election. And as we do, though, we are going to be looking at a very different appearing country. Alberta has gone from NDP to conservative. Manitoba, NDP to conservative. PEI, liberal to conservative. New Brunswick has gone from liberal to conservative. Manitoba has gone from NDP to conservative. Ontario, as you well know, has gone from liberal to conservative. Seems to be a theme question is why. Let me bring in Tim Harper. Tim is a longtime Toronto Star columnist. Two decades he spent in Ottawa covering federal politics and spent six years in Washington as well. He joins me now. Tim, thanks for doing this today. Pleasure, Scott. How are you? I'm very well. I, I, I'm looking at this, and I don't know if we can read too much into tea leaves or patterns or whatever else. I, I would say that I'm probably better than, I don't know, Justin Trudeau at this point. Is it, is it too deep a dive into this to say that when all the provinces seem to be heading away from the Liberals, that maybe that's indicative of something? <laughs> well, on the surface, it would certainly seem so. But um, I hasten to add that not every blue dot on the map uh, is uh, is equal. Let's, um, uh, Prince Edward Island voted uh, yesterday, uh, and it was a very, er- uh, very interesting election. But um, I've never heard anybody say, uh, as goes PEI, go, uh, so goes the country. So, and I, I mean no disrespect to my friends on the island, but um, you have hit on something, not so much that liberal governments have fallen because in the cyclical nature of uh, our politics that's happened before, but there certainly is uh, seemingly an appetite for change uh, across the land, at least in the provincial level. Uh, and any incumbent government uh, seeking re-election would be uh, well advised to make note of this, and I'm sure the Liberals have, I know the Liberals have. Uh, the difficulty uh, for them in the fall will be um, trying to uh, pitch continuity in a second term uh, in a country that looks uh, uh, very much enamored of change, uh, so far at least at the provincial level. Why do you think, and there could be a billion reasons, I understand, but what do you think is the big reason why this change is so desired? Because I, I could see it in a few places, but you're right, it does seem like it's almost across the board. No one is seeming to hold on to their government. Yeah, and I, it, I hasten to, I, I, I'm very hesitant to try to divine a national uh, trend out of this. For example, um, one could argue that in uh, Alberta, Rachel Notley had the deck stacked against her right from the, the get-go, and with the election of Jason Kenney, um, Alberta really has gone back to the status quo. Uh, here in Ontario, the election of uh, 
Doug Ford was a, mainly the product of a, uh, of a mindset that a tired liberal government had to go. There are, there are myriad reasons, and many of them different in, in every province, but um, there's no doubt about it going to the, the polls in October. Uh, Justin Trudeau sure now knows who the enemy is, and they are in uh, most provincial capitals. Some more dangerous than others, I hasten to add. Um, you uh, basically are looking at the uh, Jason Kenny Doug Ford tag team that will create the, the most difficulty for Trudeau, in my mind. Um, in Saskatchewan, Scott Moe represents the continuation of, uh, of the Brad Wall government, which was always a, a thorn in the side of the, the Liberals. So, you know, I don't think a lot of this has been unexpected for the Liberals. Surely they could have seen this coming. Um, it may happen again next month, by the way. Uh, we may see change again in Newfoundland. So, uh, again, the common denominator is change. Uh, and there's something else that I think we should probably talk about, and that is the surprising rise of the Green Party at the provincial level, mm-hmm. what that might portend coming in the fall. Well, drawing uh, votes away from the left-wing votes, liberal votes, like, small-l liberal votes away potentially from the liberals. Yeah, and it's interesting. At a time when we're, we uh, are all talking about this great uh, battle over the uh, federal carbon tax uh, being fought now at the court level, but certainly in the political uh, uh, arena in the fall, uh, led by Andrew Shear, Jason Kenney, and um, Doug Ford. Uh, at the same time, we're seeing the rise of the Green Party, which now is the opposition party in Prince Edward Island. I believe won three seats in New Brunswick. Um, elected their first member here in Ontario to hold the balance of power uh, in uh, British Columbia. So before anybody tells me that uh, this is going to be um, uh, a pitched battle over carbon tax and climate change and the Conservatives have the upper hand, um, I'd ask you to stop and think a little bit about what's going on with the Green Party because we seem to have two um, competing views when it comes to Progressive views on climate change and carbon pricing uh, go, uh, underway at the at the provincial level. Let me get back to the Greens in just one second, but I did want to ask: uh, politics lately, anyway, seems to be about two things. One I'll get to after the break, but one of them is pendulum swings. It, it, and it, so, is it just the case that when Trudeau came into office, at the same time there were an awful lot of liberal governments, and when the pendulum swings, that just means it's going to swing against them? It's just uh, the timing. Well. I mentioned the cyclical nature of our politics. Yes, I mean it's happened before. The uh, the Liberal Party has been virtually wiped out across the uh, the country provincially as recently as uh, I, I'm guessing uh, eight nine years ago. So I mean it, it happens. Uh, it's happening again. Uh, as I say, um, he w- when he's battling conservative uh, leaders uh, in October, uh, he was never going to uh, win anything in Alberta anyways because of the. The discontent and the anger in Alberta is, uh, is just seems to be overwhelming. The Liberals hold very little strength there. They're probably uh, about to lose everything. Uh, there's a Liberal government. I mean, uh, the Liberals fell in Quebec, but Francois Legault doesn't seem to be that anxious to pick any fights with Trudeau at this point. And that leaves Ontario. And I'm still of the view that um, uh, a, a Doug Ford government that is well past its honeymoon and is. Uh, uh, facing the battles uh, on a number of fronts may not be the worst thing that Trudeau has to uh, to deal with because uh, he provides a very uh, clear counterpoint to what could be a very unpopular government provincially come fall. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Tim Harper, longtime Toronto Star political columnist. 
about what's happened across this country. Uh, every, pretty much every provincial election that we've had in the last year, not all, but pretty much all, have gone blue under the federal liberal government. So the liberals are holding the country. Everyone else seems to be going conservative. And Tim, just before the break, you made a really interesting point, and that was that in some of these provinces, the fact that there is a conservative premier is a counterpoint to Trudeau. How much is that going to be the argument in a lot of these provinces that they make when the election comes? It's like, look, you got them. You really like them? Because that's what you're going to get more of if you vote for Andrew Scheer. Well, um, there, there, is a, uh, there is a historical pattern, although I, it didn't happen in 2015, but there is an unmistakable pattern in this province, in Ontario at least, of uh, of electing uh, provincial and federal governments uh, or, or supporting federal candidates and provincial candidates of different political stripes between the conservatives and the liberals. Um, I think actually there's a, there's a, this is going to be a very different campaign to state the obvious in 2019 than it was in 2015. Forget the sunny ways uh, of the, uh, the, the Trudeau campaign of 2015. That's long gone. That's consigned to the, uh, to the blue bin, but uh, if, <laughs> or the red bin, <laughs> or the red bin, he, he can't he can't go that way in Ontario, where Doug Ford is going to be making a lot of noise, campaigning actively uh, against him. He's going to have to be tougher. It's going to be mean. It's going to be nasty. I think Andrew Shearer has a little bit of a problem that he better be careful. He doesn't get overwhelmed by the presence of Doug Ford and Jason Kenney in Alberta, both of whom I would argue are stronger conservative personalities at, uh, at this point in time. But if you're, if you're going to sharpen um, the elbows for a, a, a really mean-spirited uh, election campaign, uh, then Doug Ford would be your man because Doug Ford uh, has been vocally campaigning vehemently against the Trudeau Liberals uh, from the moment, forget the campaign, from the moment he arrived at Queen's Park. So I think the Liberals would, would welcome the opportunity to fight against um, uh, Ford here in Ontario. Um, you know, if we're going to talk about climate change becoming a defining issue, it's very interesting. Um, forget Alberta, which uh, which is not liberal territory, never has been historically, and certainly won't be in 2019, I don't believe. Ontario and Quebec is where this election is going to be won. And I have not ever seen any polling data that indicates to me that there is widespread opposition to a carbon pricing um, uh scheme in either of those two provinces where uh, the polls will tell you that uh, sensitivity to climate change and the need to do something about it uh, runs uh, high in Ontario and Quebec. And that's where the election is going to uh, play out. And and in Alberta, I mean, in British Columbia as well, um, where environmental issues will come to the fore. So I'm not sure if I'm a liberal strategist that I'm not relishing a fight on the, um, on the carbon tax. And the louder the opposition to it from, uh, from, uh, Kenny, Ford, Scott Moe, Ballister, the, the more it gives the impression that the Trudeau liberals are really doing something, mm. that they must be stopped because um, they're not really doing much at all. This is a very tentative first step to a major catastrophic problem. But if you keep making a lot of noise as conservatives about you, you know what you're doing, you, you're, you're going to give the liberals the, the, the chance to tell voters that they're actually doing more than they are. So it's it's an interesting um, battle coming on that front, well, I, I really believe. Let me ask you about the doing part. We only have a little bit of time left here, but let me ask you about the doing. How much do you think that the voting across the country in these provinces that are going blue, or in some cases going NDP, how much of that is just the 
as you talked about it, the cyclical nature and the back and forth of politics. And how much do you think, if at all, it has to do with the federal liberals and people being upset with them, but taking it out on the provincial level? Well, Justin Trudeau has been a, always been a polarizing, uh, the name Trudeau has always been a polarizing name in Canadian politics for as long as I've been around. And um, there's there, there are pockets in this country that just think he is the devil incarnate. The problem, I believe, Scott, that the Liberals have is I don't know what they put in the window um, uh, coming in 2019. That last budget was a very um, stay-the-course kind of budget that, that had no big uh, ticket item in the window. Uh, their great uh, trade uh, accord at the U.S. We're still living under steel and aluminum tariffs with no ratification in sight. They're being penalized. They're, they're fighting a battle with China that they don't seem to be able to to win, and and the brand has been sullied by the whole SNC Lavalin affair. So you take you couple that with it with a, a mood of wanting to disrupt in the country. A lot of it, I think, is percolated north of the border uh, since the 2016 Trump election. Um, there, there's a, just an appetite for change, and I really think that's what the Liberals uh, have to run against more so than. Uh, running against uh, conservatives on, on carbon prices. Tim Harper, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for calling. It is, uh, it's going to be interesting. We vote these days against someone rather than for them. I don't know if that's what's happening here, but something's going on. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show Reading a piece in the Spectator today, and I wanted to talk about it because it's um, it's about something that's new in Hamilton. I've heard of this before. I've seen it before. Never been in one. It's an isolation tank. And as I understand it, and we'll have it better explained in just a moment, you get into one of these tanks that is filled with salt water, and in the dark and in silence, you float. I mean, it's kind of like solitary confinement, only voluntary <laughs> with water <laughs> and not as unpleasant. No jail cell stuff going on with it. Uh, it's a much more pleasant form of solitary confinement. The proponents of this swear by it, including the kicker for the Ticats, Lyram Hiralahu, in the paper, swearing by this, saying it's wonderful. Well, you know what? Let's bring on the person who is behind this one here. He can help us better. Jay Zebarth, owner of Z Float in Hamilton. Shouldn't that be Zed Float in Hamilton, Jay? Well, my last name's Zbart, so we went with uh, kind of the phonetic. All thing. right, so so it's not it's not an American thing then. No, I was thinking. No, it was, no. All right, uh, listen. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you doing this. No uh, you, I would assume, then are a floater. I am a floater. I uh, I practice a couple times a week. It's kind of my form of uh, reset, mind, body, and soul. Do you you say you practice a couple times a week? Is it something you have to practice at? And I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but do you have to do something to get used to it? Or can the, someone do it the first time they try it? Well, you'll definitely drop in the first time you try it, but you'll, you'll, you'll find you, you'll do it better and faster the more you do it. It's kind of like a gym for your brain. So uh, you want to get in there a couple times a week and you'll, you'll, you'll get a, a deeper, um, deeper relaxation the more you do it. Okay, so you've been doing this for a while? Yes, three years now we've been uh, in Hamilton, actually. Okay, I, I had no idea you've been around that long. All right, yeah. clearly. Uh, but you yourself, like, how did you find out? When did you stumble onto this or fall into it or whatever the verb is you wish to use for this one? How did you discover it? <laughs> I heard about it on a podcast, and at the time I was kind of looking for a way to uh, relax and reset myself, and I found one in Toronto about 10 years ago. It was still super fringe, 
And I tried it and I loved it. And I just didn't want to drive to Toronto anymore. And eventually I saw kind of the opening to, you know, do this in Hamilton. So walk me through how this works then, if I come in. Because, again, I've seen, you know, I saw it the first time, and I don't know if you would have, I don't even know if you're familiar with the show, but uh, Good Mythical Morning is an online uh, sort of comedy show, and they did this, and this is the first time I had ever even seen this. They went into one. But walk me through, if someone is going to do this, what happens? What is it all about? How does it work? You show up. Everything you need is there. You get your own private room. There's a private shower in there. You would undress. You do it completely naked. You shower off, and you get into this tank, and there's 35% salt. So it's 11 inches of water, so it's not very much. But it's so dense that you float, like, right on the surface, like a cork. Like the Dead Sea. Exactly like the Dead Sea. And it's heated at the same temperature as your skin. So as you lay there, you kind of lose sensation of your body because you can't tell where the water and the air meet on your body, so you just lose it. And um, it really helps with lower your stress hormones. It helps uh, aches and pains go away helps you sleep because of all the magnesium content in the water, and uh, you just kind of drift away for 60 to 90 minutes, depending on how long you want to go for. You fall asleep while you're floating? You can fall asleep. Sometimes you're very aware. It's it's uh, it's, it's very safe. You're, you're held right up, like bowling balls floating this thing, so uh, you're not going Re- anywhere. Uh, no, that, that's an exaggeration. No, there's actually uh, some people who do demonstrations. They drop a bowling ball in it, and it, uh, it's going to paint the picture for you right there. No kidding. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and what about the... Now, it, I'm a little, I don't know what the word is, creeped out about the idea of getting into a tank that some that 12 other naked people <laughs> have floated in prior to me. Yes. Um, you know, because there are people who, you know, I know what happens in pools sometimes, and I'm not saying that someone might not do the same thing in one of the tanks. So how, what do you do about the water as far as making well, sure I'm not in someone else's dirty bath water? Absolutely. And it's the number one uh, concern people have. I bet. Essentially, essentially you're, it's only one person at a time. You're starting with 35% salt. Nothing grows in, so that's what they call it, the Dead Sea. On top of that, we use hydrogen peroxide. Then it goes through a rigorous um, filtration process between every single person. It involves UV light, ozone, microbe filters. So by the time it's done, it's completely pristine, ready for the next person. And we, we, we balance the chemistry every single day. And we also do like manual cleaning between every single person. So it's, you're walking into a pretty pristine environment. All right. So even if you got a little bit of a, you know, even if you're creeped out a little, you can be confident that you're not just like bathing in someone else's germs. Yeah, yeah absolutely not. <laughs> that, that would be kind of gross though. It would be disgusting. Yeah. So that's the paramount to us to make sure that this is uh, as pristine as possible. The idea, it sounds to me then is, and this is kind of deep, I suppose, but it's about achieving, it's, it's almost a Zen thing. It's like achieving nothingness. Absolutely. It's meditation on steroids and it's, uh, it's meditation with training wheels actually because we strip away all the outside stimuli. So you don't have to worry about that anymore. You just get in there and your brain drops into theta waves, which is that twilight kind of magic moment right before you fall asleep and when you wake up. It's kind of a dream state. It's when you're, when you're a kid, you're in it for like from ages two to six. It's when you're in like a super learning state. And that's why athletes love it so much because of all the visualization. They can actually kind of just stimulate themselves in, in ways that uh, you couldn't normally achieve. But it is, does it not freak a few people out to be in pitch black and complete silence and then just floating? Like, it, it is not something that you would normally have experienced. No, I thought we'd say do three of them, because the first one is so unique. It's, it really feels like you're floating in outer space, so it takes a few to get into it. Three is usually the magic number. 
a lot of people come in with fears, especially the idea of claustrophobia, but they're very large, like seven feet tall is our biggest one, our cabin's eight foot by six foot. And you're but, but if it's control. pitch black, but if it's pitch black, how can you tell that? Uh, that's the thing. There's no sense of scale. Like, we do have lights. If you're that freaked out, we have little night lights, and some of the cabins have interior lights. So you can you can baby step it any way you want to uh, kind of get there. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. We're chatting with Jay Zebarth, owner of Z Float, about a. Well, if you want to go float your, like the song says, float away your cares, float to relaxation. Uh, and by the way, that song, Jay, was, was say, I float away with you. There's no like double options for this, right? You can't go in with somebody? No, it kind of takes away from the whole, uh, you know, isolation and that, that would, yes. <laughs> kind, of, kind of is the exact opposite of isolation, <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah. So theoretically, what benefits would I get from this? When you advertise this, when you tell people, what are the things that you tell them they are going to gain from doing something like this? Well, the hard science benefits are that it absolutely reduces all your cortisol levels through stress hormones. So those, those will drop to zero. The uh, science behind anxiety and PTSD actually rewires your brain a little bit when you come out. It shuts off certain parts of your brain that over-communicate. So you come out and you just feel really relaxed. Essentially, you feel like you went on like an all-inclusive vacation. You, you leave at the same level of stress. You're just like ready to start the day. You're at zero. It's it's wonderful. Then the anecdotal stuff is just you know creativity and um, it helps you it helps you sleep at night because of the magnesium intake you're getting in there. Because there's a thousand pounds of Epsom salt you're floating in. You, you, you well, you said scientifically. Is there science that backs this up? Have there yeah. been exa- tests done or whatever? Yes, there's a, a brain institute, uh, the Laureate Institute of Brain Research. Um, Dr. Justin Feinstein is releasing. Research on PTSD and anxiety in particular. He has been researching it for the last few years, and it's finally being peer-reviewed right now. And so uh, we will actually have hard science backing this up very shortly. And it absolutely ha- helps with, uh, with all those things. Now, whether this is something that would attract people or not attract people, I've heard that there are cases where people go into these and have hallucinations. Is that true? They're very light. It's called a hypnagogic state when your brain drops into theta waves. It's usually after you've done it a few times, but it can happen the first time. And it's really, you see, you see lights, and uh, it's nothing crazy, though. You might have some visions of your childhood that are, are pleasant, but uh, you're, not, you're not tripping out in there by any, by any means. <laughs> I mean, it's a cool, I suppose it's a cool thing. I don't know that I've ever had a hallucination. So, you know, there, there's my chance to maybe have a first one. <laughs> yeah. That or LSD, and I'm not planning to try that one. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what about now, in the story that was in the spec today, Lyram Hiralahu, who's the kicker for the Ticats, was quoted, and he was talking about why, what would it bring to an athlete? Why would an athlete want to do this? Well, first of all, it's amazing for recovery, just muscle recovery, because there's no gravity in any of your joints or your muscles, so it actually speeds recovery from workouts. And on the other level is the visualization, where you can kind of go in there and uh, just visualize your gameplay. And it's actually been shown that your, your brain, when it, when it focuses on certain things, your body and your brain don't know what's real and what's not. So if you focus on practicing, you're actually getting the benefits of practicing without actually doing anything. So it's been amazing for that. A lot of the U.S. teams have these in their uh, in their training rooms. Really? Okay. Uh, do people have these at home by themselves? I mean, I know you have your business. You're probably not wanting to send people away. But do pe- does anyone ever buy one and just keep it in their own house? 
they could, but the infrastructure required is very, very heavy. You know, the salt corrodes everything, and it's very expensive uh, to keep to upkeep with them and stuff. So you could, but it'd be a real commitment. Do you ever have anybody who comes in and does it and is freaked out by it and needs to come out? It's very rare. I mean, a lot of people come in thinking that. We say, just get in there. And if they do, they get out for a second and they get back in. And kind of once you realize that you're completely in control of your environment, you're not locked into anything. You can get in and get out whenever you want. You can turn on the light. You can leave the door open. People really calm down. It's mostly when you first come in and you have all these preconceived notions of what it is. When you get in there, you realize, oh, this is just floating around like in the ocean. And you, there's no sense of scale. So you really just feel like you're floating mm. in space. Yeah. And, you know, the, the one thing that, and having never done, I mean, I've been on the Dead Sea. I floated on the Dead Sea. So I guess I can say that I've sort of done it, except not in a sensory deprivation situation. Um, but the one thing I could really see it for is if you had some sort of arthritis or some sort of pain that was pressure from standing or whatever, that if you could take all the pressure off your body, that that would be a thing I could really see it for. Oh, it's incredible for that. We have so many people who come just for that reason alone, especially with chronic pain. It's been reported that for the first time maybe ever, they are pain-free for those 60 to 90 minutes. And it's sometimes even for a few hours afterwards if they're coming on a regular basis. So it's pretty incredible for that. What is one of these costs, an hour or an hour and a half, not to buy one? What would it cost to go for a float? Is that what you call it, by the way? Do you call it a float? What do you call it? Yeah, a float. Okay. Yeah, uh, what does uh, one of those cost? We have a 60 and a 90-minute session. A uh, 60-minute float is $65 for a drop-in, but we have uh, membership pricing, which lowers it all the way down to 39 And actually, we have an uh, upcoming event where every Thursday you can try one of our tanks for $39 straight up without a membership price. So if you're looking to explore it and try it for the first time, that's a great time to jump in. Yeah, no pun intended. And yeah. uh, <laughs> you've never used that line before. Uh, and whereabouts are you located? We are on 430 York Boulevard, right under, uh, if you know where De La Soul Yoga is, or right underneath that. It is, uh, it is your uh, your website, do you have a website people could look it up? Yes, thefloat.com, Z-E-E, float. Excellent. It is uh, it is an interesting one. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of different things that people have tried and, and have offered up. This is uh, this is on the list of the interesting ones. Jay Zebarth, Z Float, if you want to go look it up. Jay, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. Hope to see you. Uh, well, we will see. We will see. I, I am, um, hmm. I, there are, there is a part of me that says, yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. Let's, let's just, as he says, jump right in. And I, you know what? I bet it would be fantastic. I really do. I'm, I'm sure it would be fantastic. My only thought that goes into this is that whole enclosed space kind of thing. But if I could get, because when I, now this is obviously not the same, but the one time I had to have an MRI and thankfully it was only my knee, but I was looking at that going, yeah, see, I think I may be more claustrophobic than I think. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe one of these days. Never know. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. We're here working through folks, Feelings of blueness after what happened last night. A lot of people today, man, you know, all these people who say, oh, I'm not really a Leaf fan. Or I'm a, I, I don't know. A lot of people today, their true allegiances were betrayed by the look on their face and by the stuff they were saying. A lot of people. It's amazing how many people still, despite the fact that it's now 52 years 52 years since they won a Stanley Cup. Or, here's even worse, 52 years since they 
made it to a Stanley Cup final. That's, that is, that is, think about that for just a moment. Before we get on to the other stuff, think about that for just a moment. 52 years since they've even been to a Stanley Cup final. You know who's been to a Stanley Cup final in that time? Carolina. Vegas. Tampa. Florida. Colorado. I mean, almost every other NHL team. It's not completely. It's not a complete sweep. But almost every other NHL team has been to a, at least been to a Stanley Cup final, even if they didn't win. St. Louis Blues. They've been there. The Leafs haven't. The franchise that has, I would think, the biggest fan base, the most money, the most interest, drives the most ratings in the country that has the most interest in the game, 52 years. And still going on. Still going on. 52 two years. It is, I have not been alive to see a Maple Leaf Stanley Cup win. Many of you listening will be in the same category. Have not even been born to have seen a Stanley Cup. And I have decided, especially after yesterday, because the Leafs went out in the offseason and went and got John Tavares and they got some other guys, made some trades. You thought, oh, this is their chance. And then do exactly the same thing. I have now become convinced that I will not see in my lifetime the Maple Leafs win a Stanley Cup. Let me bring in Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. He is a younger man than I by a little ways. Will you in your lifetime see the Maple Leafs win a Stanley Cup? Wow. Loaded question. Um, (laughs) Hey, it's really tough right now to be optimistic. I, I understand. Um, but there have been incremental. This is three years of the rebuild, and this team is better than last year's team. I know it was the same result, but this team is better than last year's team. And you, there were additions that you talked about that may have, or at least you would expect to have an um, an influence on this team going forward. And but you know we can't deny the fact that there will be difficult decisions that need to be made. So about a Stanley Cup, I mean that's hard for me to say. But I still believe that you know this team you know was has made you know some growth from the year before. I just look at it and I think you know if you are a Maple Leaf fan, and as I said just a moment ago, they are everywhere. Even the people who hide their allegiance to the team but mm-hmm. secretly have it, they are everywhere. They, they got to be. They honestly have to be looking and saying, "How is it that every other two-bit, broken-down?" crappy team in some hockey wasteland has a chance to at least go to the Stanley Cup Finals. And we can't even put together that kind of a run. And here's the worst part, if you're a Leaf fan. This was the year, Bubba. This was 100% the year. Calgary went out. Tampa went out. The Jets went out. Boston would have been out. Nashville. Nashville is out. This was the year that everything could have fallen into place. It will not in any way shock me now if either Boston or Columbus goes to the Stanley Cup Finals, I fully expect that one of those two teams and probably wins the Cup this year. The, well, the door I mean, was open. I mean, Columbus, yeah, I think a lot of people, and and this is tough, a lot of people, I think, looked at the teams and looked a lot at the seedings and didn't, I mean, we do this, the CFL is the greatest example of what, what I'm going to lay out here. 
it isn't always about your record or your point total at the end of the season. How is a team playing going into the end of the year, Scott? And I, and I think you look at every example of these upset teams, and they were all playing better than the relative teams. And that includes Columbus, who were playing playoff hockey for the better part of a month. And Tampa were, had been in cruise mode since January. That goes for so many teams and how you're playing. We see this in the CFL all the time. There are several examples of sub-500 teams, 10-8 uh, and eight teams, 9-9 nine and nine teams, eight, eight, you know, that have won great cups. And I think it's sometimes we lose sight of that. Um, so we shouldn't really be that surprised by this. And, and in addition, in the logical sense, Scott, the Bruins beat the Leafs three out of four times in the regular season. They also were seven points better than the Maple Leafs in the regular season. So should we? And and they had to play hard down the stretch too. So sh- should we be surprised by the loss? No, I, I wouldn't say surprised. I think that the Leafs, when you went out, got Tavares. When you got Jake Muzzin, I think the Leafs had a realistic fans had a realistic belief that they could possibly beat them. Here's what I think. Here's where I think this thing fell apart for the Leafs. Truly, it was before last night. In the stretch drive of the season, the Leafs lost two games to the last place Ottawa Senators. They lost to Philadelphia. They lost mm-hmm. to, I can't remember who the other team was, another Vancouver, lost to them. Yep. There's your home ice advantage right there. there yep. And, yep. and if that game, if game seven is in Toronto, I'm not by any stretch guaranteeing because actually they played better on the road, but there is not a player alive that says, given my druthers, I would rather play game seven on the road. There is not one. And I, I don't know. I look at this and... Th- this to me, and, and in that time that you're speaking about through all those games, remember Boston won 18 straight games in that time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's my point. Just comes back to if you're a Leaf fan, I think you have a legitimate reason to doubt that you will ever see a Stanley Cup champion because even when <laughs> no no because even at those times when it's looked like something that it could happen, there is always something. And I go back, and I'm I'm not. I'm, this is not the woe is me Leaf fan. Well, maybe it sounds like that, but you know the Leafs could have been in in ninety. What was it three? And it Nine, was the Carey the Carey Fraser. Yeah, but the Carey Fraser thing yep, that could have got them in. You go like, look, Carey Fraser was a good NHL official. He had a good career. He had a very good career. Sure. What he's now that is his Bill Buckner moment. He is yep. always known as the guy who missed the Gretzky high stick. And you go, how is it that it happened to the Leafs, not some other team? It could never happen to the other team. And I think Leaf fans look at this and go, we have a goalie who was playing fantastic for six games. He was he was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden gives up two muffins in the game seven. And oh, it's there been we his go. history, though. It's been his history, though, yeah, right? And yeah. he's never won a game seven. And, and for as much as I love Freddie Anderson, and I think he's you know an outstanding goaltender in the National Hockey League, it could be also remembered, too, that he has a lifetime 8-11 and 11 record in the postseason. Yeah. No. Right? I, you know, and Tuka Rask is definitely better than that. And, and in this situation, Tuka Rask did outplay him on home ice. He sure did. Post, he sure did. And the biggest thing, and what everybody's been talking about today, is that seemingly you have a coach who I would argue, and I think it's a very compelling argument at this point, whose reputation vastly exceeds his results. This is a coach who is the highest paid coach in hockey, who is presumably one of the most brilliant coaches in hockey and is now 
lost eight of his last nine playoff series, which is not the results you expect from a man who apparently squeezes everything and strategizes with the most brilliant of them to get the stuff. He had a better team this year and had worse results. You know, and and again, I find it difficult to, to, to really criticize Babcock. Now, the basic thing, he doesn't go out there and play the games, right? True, he didn't, true. He doesn't, he doesn't turn over the puck. Uh, like Gardner did. He doesn't throw the puck up the middle like uh, Travis Dermott did. He didn't allow a weak goal, uh, you know, off the post like Anderson did. I think he puts his players in, you know, in good position to win. Every coach has a strategy. He has long been a guy that rolls his four lines, and I know there's, you know, a, a, a portion of the public out there that are furious with him for not giving Austin Matthews, you know, great ice time. I could be wrong here, but I, I think when I checked, he was minus three in the game, Austin Matthews. He had only had three shots in the, uh, on goal. Now, would I rather have him on the ice than, than uh, you know... Frederick Gauthier? Frederick Gauthier? You're probably right. You're, you're probably right. But over the years, I mean, this is a 100-point team we're talking about. Like I said, that lost to a 107-point team on home ice. You know, it, it, it's tough for me to, to say, you know, that Babs is a bad coach or, you know, he's lost tune with, you know, his team. I mean, I, I always find those, those, those comments very dangerous because we don't know what's going on behind the door. We don't. Right? We don't. And, 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 and uh, you know, as much, as much as, you know, some people say they're close to the team, we, th- there are many. Hey, Scotty Bowman, right? I, I, I found I read this and you've probably heard the same thing because you read even more than I do. There is not a player on the Montreal Canadiens for the better part of a decade that liked Scotty Bowman. In fact, they despised the man. But how did he do? Did he, did he ever lose eight out of nine playoff series? No. No, no. He didn't. no. He and if you're going to be that guy who is smarter than everybody, right. you have to win. Because yeah. if you don't win, you're no longer smarter than everybody. You're stubborn, yeah. and you're beating your head against a wall where maybe you should say, hey, I got an idea. Let's right. try something different. And and here, I mean, all through the series, their yeah. penalty kill was awful. It wasn't until Game 7 that he finally said, you know, maybe we should do something different. Now, of course, they had no penalties to kill no, in Game no. 7. <laughs> yeah, but, but the fact was... Right. How, who, if you were coaching the Maple Leafs and your penalty kill, you know, here's the thing. The Leafs penalty kill, I think it was through the entire series or going into game seven, on home ice, their penalty kill was 28%. The previous worst in NHL history for a team that had at least three games in the playoffs, 50%. They were half again as bad as the worst historic team. And it took six games to say, maybe we ought to change something. That's not brilliance. That's stubbornness to the point of self-defeating. But, uh, but this is going back to, to why I believe it's a shared blame, Scott, is because... Well, of course. I mean, you, you talk, I, mean I, I know you can... Hey, there's, I mean, any time you lose a playoff series, any time you lose a game, there's definitely you know, reasons that you can point towards that, you know what, we didn't, uh, we didn't win because X, Y, Z. But to me, I know there's a lot of people pointing fingers at Babcock right now. But you know what? You just reeled off a, 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 a number of games during the last quarter of the season that the Maple Leafs uh, lost. But when you look at the who was in goal for some of those games, mm-hmm. or a good portion of those goals, who was in goal? The guy that Dubas chose. Sparks. 
Sparks, the guy that Dubis wanted yep. over McElhaney. Yep. And, th- and, that, and there was definitely, that I know because I know enough people on the inside with the Maple Leafs, that Babcock is, was extremely close to Curtis McElhaney, veteran guy, shut his mouth, did his job, won games when necessary. Whereas Sparks was always a guy that talked too much without producing. And for a backup goaltender. And in the National Hockey League, when you're the backup goaltender, I know this is maybe a bit of a, you know, a tough thing to say, but when you're the backup goaltender in the National Hockey League, it's kind of like being a kicker in the National Hockey League, at National Football League or the CFL. Just make it. Just, just do your job. Yep, yep. No, right? I agree. Here, here's the thing. Uh, clearly, it, it looks like, based on comments through the year and things like that, it looks like Dubas and Babcock don't see eye-to-eye on some things. There were some shrouded comments and some some stuff that was said that you could you could get the hint Babcock made comments about you know we want to be a bigger heavier team and we didn't when they traded for Muzzin he's you know he says well it's not exactly what we needed but we'll make do and the, like these are comments that show I'm I'm not on board with my GM uh, if that's the case I thought Muzzin was good Muzz, I thought Muzzin well if they didn't have Muzzin they were in a lot of trouble look I if you've got a general manager and a coach who, for whatever reason, whether it's stylistic, strategy, analytics, all that kind of stuff, if they're not seeing eye to eye, it's not about to get better because the general manager is going to believe in certain players and go out and get them, and the coach is, doesn't, is going to not like those players and end up playing guys that shouldn't be playing, like, you know, what's his name, uh, uh, Marlo, who, right. who, here's my idea. You ready for this one? Here's my idea. I think it's genius, even though it'll never happen. <laughs> if a player... On the Toronto Maple Leafs is not performing to the level that you expect, you send him to the Marlies. And even if he has a one-way NHL contract, you can send him there. You may have to pay him his full salary, but you can send him there to get rid of him off your roster. The Marlies have a coach right now. William Nylander? The Marlies have a coach right now, Sheldon Keefe, that Kyle Dubas loves and would love to have as the coach of the Maple Leafs, I believe. I say the Maple Leafs that Kyle Dubas, they don't want to fire Babcock because he's got $25 million left. <laughs> You send Babcock to coach the Marlies. I'm paying you your $25 million, and I'm going to call up Sheldon Keefe. And, Mike, you can ride the buses for a while and see how to coach young kids and be flexible with your ideas. And then maybe we'll bring you back. We'll call you back up. I think that's the brilliant idea of the day. You know, and to the to the bigger picture, Scott. Well, <laughs> you don't like my what, idea? No, I'm not going to comment. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. But but it's but, never happened. Know, but that, you're, never because you're not the only person saying this, and this is why I'm not. I can't really laugh at someone else. Came up with this. You I thought what? this was unique. Well, they, in different ways, right? <laughs> They've twisted the story different ways, right? But I've heard everything from putting him in an electric Babcock in an electric chair. So your idea of putting him in, in I don't want to put him. I don't want to kill him. <laughs> I don't want, who said kill him? It's a little extreme. Death. You know, that's how crazy this Leaf Nation public is here in yeah. Southern Ontario. Killing him is excessive. Country. You know, and, and it, but here's the thing. We don't want the what, last what is, scene what, from... What has Keith done? What has Sheldon Keith... Like, I mean, I, I, you know what? It's funny because you're right. Maybe this is a crisis time for the Maple Leafs right now. But in this case, this goes beyond Mr. Dubas. Mr. Shanahan. Yeah, the Shanahan plan. Shanahan is going to have to now step up because he's going to have to say, okay, I've got a general manager that has had two years of National Hockey League experience. And, yes, maybe he's in a war with a, a Mike Babcock who's been in the National Hockey League for uh, almost two decades. So at some point, Mr. Shanahan is going to have to, behind closed doors or by himself or seek counsel from Cliff Fletcher or somebody, 
on what to do here. Take because them both out for ice cream and have a nice chat. Sure. You know, go. I mean, when he hired a couple of these guys, they went for pizza, I've been told. And so. you know, you said who is Sheldon Keefe? You know who Sheldon Keefe is? Sheldon Keefe is Timmy Chang. Remember Timmy Chang? Oh, God. The Ticats quarterback? Oh, God. The guy that was going to be the great quarterback, and then as right. soon as he got into a game, he couldn't throw a spiral and couldn't throw a pass. Okay, Sheldon Keefe is the great hope because we, he's a blank slate. And everyone's mad at, at Babcock, and I think with some justification. But I'm, I, you know, I'm joking about the sending him down. Although I do think it's an interesting idea. You could try it. You could see what would happen if you told Babcock you're going to the Marlies. Well, I mean, that was just a, a whole interesting ruling for all pro sports, right? That you could do this to players. Hey, and, you, you know, can you can trade coaches. You know. It has happened. You can trade a coach. Yes. So why could you not send him down, Mike? I hope you like bus rides. You're on your way to Belleville. <laughs> What, what what happens if he says I'm not reporting? <laughs> you don't have to pay him. Okay, there yeah. you get your answer. And he can't coach another team in the NHL against you for four years. I would think. <laughs> Although I think that there may be some lawyers involved. When you were lying in bed last night, did you have this all planned out? No, but I. <laughs> it dawned on me today. Send him to the Marlies. That's the answer. <laughs> well, uh, that's- maybe not. Uh, yeah. Listen, uh, interesting we, times for that. Team, interesting for times, sure. and we're out of time. Uh, but something just for people to be aware of: in the last ten minutes or so, the Blue Jays have announced that they Vladdy, are calling up Vladdy, Vladdy Guerrero Vladdy. Jr. So, get ready for that for the next few days. It'll be all Vladdy all the time. And you want to know something? He is going to hit six home runs in his first game. What, he's going to pull an Austin Matthews. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, he won't. But he, you know what? This is this is finally hope. For Blue Jay fans, after the last year and the year before and the start to this year, uh, this looks like it may be something to watch. We'll be keeping an eye on him for sure, and we'll be chatting about him because well, uh, we'll have lots to talk about next time we get together. Yeah, well, real quickly, just it, yeah. I, mean, I the, the, it was a smart move by them because the original talk was that, that he was coming up Tuesday and to share the like the likes with the, the Leafs and the Raptors oh, yeah. was, was not a great idea. So Friday night, it's it's all Vladdy all the time. Or or to move. wait till next week when they're on the road. How much of a slap in the face to Jays fans would that have been to oh, have his debut on oh, the road? Come oh my on. Goodness. No, they did it right. I, well, they did it right-ish, as right as they could at this point. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Uh, anybody who wants to uh, give me positive or negative feedback on my idea about sending Babcock to the Marlies. <laughs> Not really being serious about it, but yeah, you know, maybe you put a little bug in someone's ear and some brighter person than me goes, you know, hmm. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.